Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about engines. Get your engines running. We're talking about engine building games, and we're talking to Elizabeth Hargrave. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I am so, so glad you're here. Before we got started, uh, we were joking about how we've been trying to make this happen for a while, and we've been just like ships in the night, just passing, and it's just never worked out schedule-wise, and I'm so excited to have you on the show. Wingspan, it's, uh, it's you might say it's doing doing pretty well. Yeah, you could say that, sold out you know, anywhere and everywhere, and so congratulations on Wingspan. I'm just so, super excited that you're here. Yeah, it's it's been a wild ride the last few months. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. Now, it's funny, I was talking to somebody the other day about games and how, you know, games, gaming is weird. Like, you just can't guess a lot of times. You can't, like, speculate or, or, or figure out what's going to happen next. Because if someone had said, first of all, Stonemaier Games is going to come out with a game about bird bird watching and birding, <laughs> I'd have been like, yeah, okay. And then if you had also said, and that game's going to go, like, be wildly popular, be super highly rated, and sell out before the pre-order is even done, I'd be like, yeah, okay, whatever you say. And then here we are. Here we are in that world where this incredible, amazing game you've created is just sold out, and it's about birds. And so I just love the the diversity in gaming right now. It's just, it's, we're in amazing times. Yes. Yeah, there's been just a great explosion of themes over the last few years. It's been exciting to see. Yeah, definitely. Now, are you like an avid bird watcher? Like, did you, like, where did the whole bird theme come from? I am, yeah. I've I've been an outdoorsy person all my life and got into birding more recently. Although I always had like a pair of binoculars and a field guide, but um, I'd say maybe about 10 years ago, really started putting effort into learning the birds and, and going out specifically birding. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I'm glad you were able to take that passion, that hobby, that, you know, all those things that you love about that and turn it into a game that's, you know, doing really well. And so actually let's, let's kind of get more into that. Tell me who you are, just in case people haven't heard of Wingspan, haven't heard of Elizabeth Harvard. Who are you? How do you, how did you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Sure. Um, I live outside of Washington, DC. I moved here to work for the federal government many years ago. Um, and now just do freelance consulting on healthcare policy, uh, for mostly for at sort of the federal level here in the U S. Um, and I've been playing hobby board games, gosh, since about 2005. Mm-hmm. And Wingspan was my first game idea, and it really came out of a conversation that I was having with folks uh, that I play a lot of games with uh, about our dissatisfaction in sort of the themes that were available, especially at the time. This was maybe five years ago now. Um, I think it has gotten better, but <laughs> some, uh, other other people must have been having the same conversation around the same time. But... Uh, yeah, I just started messing around with the idea and it, it took a long time to really gel. But once I got started, I was kind of hooked. Yeah, definitely. And then you submitted it to Stonemaier Games and that was back in 2016, right? Yeah, at Gen Con in 2016. I went and pitched it to several different publishers and, and Jamie's the one that decided to take it on. Well, I would say that was a a good move on his part. And then I know it's been a long development process to get it to where it is now, but it's just, uh, yeah, congratulations on all the success so far. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump into engine building games. Let's get a good working definition. What do you think? Like when someone says engine building, what does that mean exactly? To me, it's a game that has an element where you are acquiring or building things during the game that are then going to help make you better at doing the core actions in the game. So, um, you know, in Wingspan, if you consider the core stuff being that you need to get more food, you need to get more cards um, and laying eggs, which are points, um, you're building things throughout the game that make you better at doing those three things and so where your actions might be super simple at the beginning of the game by the end you might have these epic turns where you're you know picking up five cards and 
scoring a whole bunch of points um, all because of the things that you built built throughout the game. Yeah, definitely. And the cool thing about engine building games is I feel like they can be combined with so many, maybe every other uh, type of mechanism. If you think about Dominion, okay, it's a deck builder, but you're also building an engine with this deck that you're, you're creating. Right, you're right. trying to build an engine to have these amazing turns, like you're saying. What are some of your other like favorite engine building games? Um, I was playing a lot of Race for the Galaxy when I first started yeah. designing Wingspan. I love that game. It has such a high learning curve, but once you're into it, it's just such a tight, quick game with really interesting decisions um and definitely has that build to it um splendor is like this pure little like there's hardly any theme it's just you're getting stuff to get more stuff (laughs) (laughs) gems get you more gems um terraforming mars is a much more com- you know on the much more complex end of engine building. Um, those are some of the ones that I've played the most. After Wingspan came out, people compared it a lot to Imperial Settlers and Fifty First State, which I've mm-hmm. never played either of them. But I've looked at it and gone, oh yeah, sure, I can see that. Um, Deus is another one um, that I there's definitely little pieces of of Deus in Wingspan. Gizmos is one that came out recently, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's there's so it's many. Very pure engine building. Yeah, it's a it's a very satisfying set of mechanisms because number one, people just like to build stuff, right? right? <laughs> you like to feel like you've accomplished something and made a thing that that benefits you. Um, and it's it's just such a nice arc to the game that you start out super simple and you end up feeling just awesome. Yeah, for sure. And that kind of leads into my my next question is why? Like why are people so attracted to these games? And I think you're you're right on point. Like people love to build stuff, first of all, but they also love to build things to prove that they're smarter than the other people around them. Right. If you think about like <laughs> what what major sports are, like an NFL team or NBA team, that is an owner and a general manager saying, We're gonna build the best engine. We're gonna get these players and put these parts together and we're gonna make them work together to the point where we win a championship and you don't. Right. That's an engine building that or NASCAR is obviously literally building an engine and putting it in a car and trying to go faster than the other cars. And so like, what are some other reasons you think why people are just so drawn to engine building in general, but especially in games? And we talk a lot about interesting choices in games, right? Like you always want people to have interesting choices. And I think the fact that within most engine builders, there are things that are better for you sort of early game and late game and like being able to discern that and decide when you're flipping to the like late game, mm-hmm. just generating points like that makes for a really interesting set of decisions within the game. Um, and they also lead to asymmetry pretty quickly, except in cases like Splendor, where it's just like you're everyone's basically doing the same thing. But <laughs> Splendor only has like four rules. The whole game is four rules. You know, <laughs> it's only so much you can do. Um, but in a lot of engine building games, you're pretty quickly you're going to start going down one path because of the things that you have started putting into your engine, yeah. and the people you're playing against will have. Um, started down another path and some games start you out with some starter stuff that makes that happen even from turn one but even if a game doesn't have asymmetrical starting positions um, it just sort of naturally leads to asymmetry which is then makes the game feel more replayable and all the you know all the benefits that come along with asymmetry where you don't feel like you're always everyone's always doing the same turn over and over kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. And I think overall, like people love games for two reasons. One, you just mentioned, they love choices. I want to, I want to make choices and have the opportunity to make better choices than my opponent and ultimately win the game. And people also love puzzles, right? And trying to figure out the puzzly nature of things. I think engine building games give, give players an opportunity to, to take these pieces and then, puzzle them together in a way that's better than the person next to them. But it's, it's not like, you know, A and B have to go next to each other. I mean, you could put A next to F. I could put A next to Z. And it's, it's a matter of like, there's no necessarily wrong answer a lot of times. It's just like the better answer. And I feel like it gives people this opportunity to kind of puzzle out things and, and do it better than the other people sitting next to them. 
Yeah. And it, this isn't universally true, but some engine building games, like I think Windspan does this well. I think Gizmos does this. They start out so simply and then ramp up, you know, in a way that can make the game feel very accessible because your first few turns where you're figuring out how the game works, there's not a ton going on. Yeah. And then by the time you've started building things, you're sort of learning how it all works as you go. And I, I think that gives people an entry point. Um, now, if they're having to face a lot of complex decisions about what to purchase to put into their engine, then then that makes it less accessible. But I, I think certain styles of engine builders make make their games fairly easy to learn. Yeah, it's a great point. And the player actually kind of gets to learn as the game goes, as opposed to having to learn everything at the beginning, right? There's so many games where you have to read the whole rule book, otherwise you can't even start. But with engine building, it's like, okay, you can, you can, you have to know the basic rules, obviously, but you're going to be adding complexity over time, as opposed to adding it all at the same time at the beginning. That's that's a really good point. Yep. All right. So one question I get all the time, people send me emails, especially new designers, people just getting into the hobby is where to start, right? They're, they're overwhelmed. They sit down at their table and they've got all these ideas. They've got all these things written down in their notebook and they want to make a prototype. They want to get you know going, get started. And they have no idea where to start. And they're just overwhelmed. And I can imagine with an engine building game, it, it's doubly so, right? There's so many systems and so many things working off each other and combos and things to think about. So like, tell me your process about like, where do you, where do you start with games in general, but especially in this style of game? So for games in general, I just, you have to just stick something on paper and start moving pieces of paper around and play against yourself until like the thing that was in your head actually, you know, or the thing that's yeah. on the table actually resembles what was in your head, right? Which usually my first attempt does not at all, <laughs> but you can't figure that out unless you start actually trying to play it. Um but with Wingspan, it did not start out as an engine builder. Like the the core concept for me was this concept of like there's all these economic games where you're um, trading, you know, wood and ore and all of these natural, you know, cutting down all the trees to build things. I was like, you could have a game where all of the resources are the food and then the things that you're building are the animals that are eating the food and like how would that work and so the first thing i worked out was just that system of like okay if the resources are food and the things you're building are birds like what how would that even physically work and um and then i started building in the elements of okay how would you then do that more powerfully over time. And and my first concept was sort of that you were building up this nature preserve and um, the intermediate step between no engine building and where it ended up was that you were much more obviously sort of literally building a park and investing in like the infrastructure of the park and doing things to restore the grasslands or to create nesting programs for your birds and things like that um and that all worked but then sort of went from there to okay but but people really just want to interact with the birds like that's the core engagement of this game and so how can i take these sort of building these things that make the game feel like it builds and how can i make those all just come from the birds themselves and so that's um some of the birds already had powers but that from there sort of really ramped up the concept of the powers on the birds and those activating and and the concept of um the number of birds in each habitat also um influencing how many times you can do the action that's associated with that habitat right so it's it's sort of there are three separate engines there's your forest which is the food there's the um the grasslands which are your eggs which are points and there's the wetland which are cards Um, and each one of those basically has two layers of engines so just by having more birds in each habitat you get to do more of the action that's associated with that habitat but also you get to activate 
the powers on each bird in that habitat when you do that action. So those were sort of two separate concepts that got layered on top of each other because I had sort of played with doing each one and then realized when, when you cross them with each other, then it just is this really nice build. Yeah, very cool. And so when you, whenever you decided, okay, let's just make it birds. Let's not worry about the park. Let's not worry about the, the woodlands, all these different things. It's just going to be birds. Did, did you already have the idea for these three main, you know, areas that the yes. birds would fall into and then went into the deeper system? Okay. And so like then, but then did you have the deeper systems or did that kind of flow out of figuring out, okay, we're going to do these three core mechanisms and then we'll go deeper from there. So I always had the three habitats and the concept of aligning the habitats with the three main actions um, came along somewhere in the middle of the process. (laughs) I don't remember at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's it's been a a minute or two since you've been working on this. But that that wasn't like from the inception. So the birds I had always sort of sorted. And actually, at first I had a fourth habitat. Now that I think I had sort of like birds that can live in the town. Oh, okay. But, uh, yeah. And so was there an extra action that you had? You just cut that whole action from the game? No, so that's what I'm saying. At the beginning, I didn't have them associated with actions. Oh, gotcha. And at at some point, that was one of the the first sort of engine building pieces that I added in was associating them with actions and then trying to have the the number of birds that you have in that habitat affect how how well you do at that action. Um, it wasn't until fairly late in the development after it was signed that we came up with the player mat and sort of the, the exact, um, speed that your engine builds based just on having the bird cards in each habitat. And that, um, that was one of the main levers. It's hard to figure out, man, like how fast do you want people to ramp up on things? Right. Um, and every like you were saying earlier everything is sort of interconnected and it's it's uh it's a lot of trial and error at least it was for me yeah for sure and that's something i want to get into yeah. in a minute when we talk about playtesting because these these games are are bears when it comes yeah. to playtesting but let's get let's wait on that i want to ask you a couple things before we travel down that road now one thing i love about your game is if i'm not wrong now i haven't been able to play it because it's sold out <laughs> but and so i haven't been able to obviously pick up a copy it, it best definitely hasn't come to the game stores in honduras yeah. uh, and so uh, let me ask you about this the the birds in the game they're all different like yes. right don't they all have different yes like powers or okay and how many birds are in the game i mean some of the powers repeat but every bird the the cards are all different. Yeah, and how many birds are there? 170. 170. Okay, now tell me about your process for coming up with it because I'm sure you didn't start with 170 birds and then figure. Yeah, like, no, and I didn't pitch it with 170. <laughs> right. So, like, how did you like ramp up your on your end the design side? Yeah. Like, did you start with 20 and then kind of work your way up? All right, where did it, where did it go? For a long time, it was around 50. It was, you know, it was like a deck right. of cards kind of size, mm-hmm. and. It was really actually Jamie that wanted to push it. And this was, you know, after Terraforming Mars had come out and that that game has such an awesome, huge deck of cards and you're always feeling that, you know, you can make it through many games of Terraforming Mars and not ever see the same right. set of cards. And um, that's just really fun. And so we sort of talked about like, wouldn't that be awesome to yeah. be? And I was like, sure, more birds. Great. <laughs> and, right. But, and like coming up with all the powers for them was was uh, no joke. Yeah, it took a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so was it mainly a replayability factor you guys are thinking about? Yeah, and just and that sense of discovery. I mean, I guess that's yeah. replayability. It's all the same, mm-hmm. but not just like how many times do people want to play it, but that because the, there's other things. The, the, the engine that you build every time can be so different. Like even if there were a smaller set of birds, I think it would still have a lot of replayability, but... right. It's just fun. I mean, the birds right. are also gorgeous, and um, <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, the art's amazing for sure. Now, one thing I've just just thought about: when you have this many cards, then that creates all right. So sometimes an engine builder, like a game, can be solved where a player knows, all right, on this turn I need this card, on that turn I need that one, and they they know the exact engine they're going to build. But when you have so many cards and so many where you're not going to see them all in one game. Players can't necessarily do that. They can't think, okay, I just need this card and this card and this card, and then I'll do my engine, and then I'm going to no, win. Yeah. Then I'm going to guaranteed 88 points no matter what. And you can't do that because you have so many cards. So it kind of protects your engine from being solved overall. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, there are some 
large categories, right? So like in general, the birds in each habitat, a, a good chunk of them have powers that then add on to the power of that habitat even more. So birds in the wetland, which gets you cards anyway, are on average more likely to also be birds that help you get more cards. Um, so you can think about it sort of in general categories like that and I did try to you know make sure that there are the same number of birds available for each habitat and so you know if you want to try a strategy where you really double down on the forest early on so that you're getting lots of food that should be possible um, and the fact that part of your engine just comes from any bird in each habitat helping you um, makes that even more possible, right? Yeah. So you don't have to just rely on the powers on the bird cards. But if you can get some of those powers out early on that are boosting some of those basic actions, it definitely um, helps get you going. Yeah, for sure. And that actually leads me to the, yeah. the next idea I want to talk about, and that's that's focus. Now, some, some engine building games, like you just need to focus and you need to be the best at x and you need to do it as well as you can and don't worry about other stuff and then there's other engine game engine building games where you want to spread out and you want to be really good at x and a little bit of y and a little bit of z and so like tell me about your process of kind of figuring that out of like managing that and kind of going through the the balancing process of of just kind of discovering as the designer like what the game wanted to be but also making sure that that it kind of fit what you wanted it to be yeah, I did try to make it so that you really do need to engage with all three different habitats. Um, so most of the um, cards that are playable across different habitats are not things where you can, you know, play a bird that draws cards in your forest habitat. There are a few, which in the forest is the one that gets you food. Um, there are a few exceptions to that, and people have noticed that and really call those birds out as like, oh, if you can get this one, it's awesome because it lets you get away with not using that other action. Um, because in general, you're going to have to do all three actions. Um, and one example of uh, something that I really struggled with on that is the eggs generally are points, right? So at first, they were not. Um, sort of a fundamental required thing that you had to do. It was just a question of like, okay, at some point you switch over and you're going to want to generate a bunch of eggs for points. It's one of many ways that you get points, but um, but it's a guaranteed way. Um, and it was it, just a weird dynamic that people could get away with not laying eggs for you know a good chunk of the game. And so now... Um, as you get further out in each row of birds, you are required to also pay eggs as part of the cost of the bird. And so that sort of serves a double purpose, right? It's a headwind against someone who's building this powerful engine because building your fourth and fifth bird especially costs two points each, basically. You have to discard two eggs. Um so it's a headwind against someone that's that's building a powerful engine, but it's also requiring you to engage in that egg building, egg laying engine earlier in the game than you otherwise would have had to. Yeah, definitely. Okay, let's switch gears just a little bit. And let's talk about the ending of a game. Now, engine building building games have interesting endings a lot of times where, you know, you're ramping up, you start real slow, and then in the middle, you're faster. And then by the end, your engine is just moving along, the game is picked up speed, it's moving like crazy, and then the game ends, right? And a lot of times it'll end before before people are really quite ready for it too, which I think that's probably a better place yeah. to end than when they're past ready for it too. <laughs> if you're going to pick between I those think two. You really, I think it's important actually to end it. I mean, number one, psychologically, right? Yeah. You want to leave people wanting more. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think for sort of balance and gameplay purposes, you don't want it. It solves again. It's like a check on a runaway leader. If someone's engine is just clearly better than everyone else's, like why make everyone else play through the three <laughs> yeah. rounds where they're just getting whooped by this person who's so far ahead of them? Like, that's not fun. Right except for the person who did it, <laughs> in which case it probably feels awesome, but not even, right? Like if they already know they're winning, then it, even for them, it's diminishing returns, right. even though they're doing this awesome thing. And you just, you want, 
I like having it at this length where like you could still eke out that last couple turns where you're running a really awesome engine, but it feels like you're, you're just in under the wire rather than like, oh, obviously your last turn is just ridiculous. Yeah. So as a designer, how do you how do you do that? Like, what was your process of like making sure the game ended when you wanted it to? I mean, I think that's just playtesting and iterating and um, I mean, so part part of it is the number of turns, and you know, Jamie Stonemeyer in general says that they don't like games that are like round based and turn based, but for for this game, it it really felt actually important to to have a fixed number of turns mm-hmm. um, for multiple reasons, but this was one of them. I'm like, because um, for a long time, the the end condition of the game was actually how many birds you had out on your mat. I forget. We, we would play to like 10 or 12 birds, something like that. But um, there were a lot of games where people had a disincentive to ever play that last bird because mm-hmm. they could get more points running their engine again. Right. Um, and so switching to a, f- a fixed number of turns sort of solved that problem. And then we could do sort of the, the round based stuff and, and, um, and have those intermediate scoring goals, which are also very, uh, I thought a nice piece of the game. Um, so, but yeah, then deciding the exact number of turns was really just trial and error. I don't know if that there's any real formula to it but but finding that sweet spot where in most games uh, folks aren't sure who's gonna win by the time the game ends right and i feel like a lot of these games are race games you're racing to a certain number of points you're racing to do something first to kind of trigger the end game and sometimes the Mm -hmm. first one to get there wins and then other times the first one to get there just gets an extra bonus and so there's a big incentive to to get there first so to speak Uh, but i feel like that's that's one way that a lot of people uh, kind of solve this issue. Now, have you seen other ways that engine building games have, like things they've done to kind of end the game? To decide how it ends. That's a good question. Let's go back through the ones you mentioned earlier. So Splendor. Yeah, Trevor, right. Mike. So Race for the Galaxy is how many cards you have out. Okay. And what is their incentive to to put the cards out? Kind of like because you ran into the issue of players holding back. So what do they? How do they make sure people are playing cards? Right. Oh, so it's how many cards are right. So they have the same issue, right? So it's how many cards you have out. I think you play to twelve cards in in Race for the Galaxy, um, but you can set up an engine where you are producing goods and selling them for money, and that and that's going to um, create much more income for you than getting another card at will. So the other thing that can end the game in race for the galaxy is that the money in the game is a fixed pot and mm. it can run out and that yeah, ends the game. That makes sense. Yeah. I think a lot of these games have multiple triggers. So that way, so that could be another way I could have solved it in wingspan, right? Like you, instead of just uh, avoiding ending the game with cards, I could have had a finite mm. number of eggs. I might've even played around with that. Because that's the, the main way that people were generating points and not wanting to end it. Although there are other ways to get points in Wingspan where you're tucking cards and things. And I, I don't think I could have ruled them all out in a way that the game definitely would have ended. Yeah. And then what about like Splendor? How does that one end? Splendor is to a certain number of points. So that you you always want more points, right? So you're, that's always going to end. It's just the first person of 15 points. Yep. And then Terraforming Mars? Right. What that one? Terraforming Mars, there's all these different systems, right? And it's when they're all past a certain point, right? Like the oxygen mm-hmm. level has to be high and the yeah. water all has to be on the board. So that's definitely a much more complex system. Right. But there, those are all things that give you points. There's always an incentive to do them. I don't, and there aren't a lot of other ways that you're getting points. So I don't think you would ever choose to not do the thing that ends the game. Right. 
I think a lot of these types of games, they have multiple triggers, right? They, they found the same issues you did. And they said, well, here's yeah. what players are doing. So let's, let's also add this other system in there to make sure the game ends when it needs to and doesn't last you know, 30 minutes or an hour longer than, than the experience should. And so I think that's another good thing to come up with as you're designing these games is, is realize player psychology. And like you're saying, there, there are going to be certain incentives that they're just like, oh, I'm going to not lay that last card down because I can get 10 points doing this. And I'm only going to get five points doing that. And so they're going to think through those. And so you have to figure out a system to kind of encourage them or at least the game just ends right? and it, after a certain number of rounds it ends or all the eggs are gone all the points are gone all the money's gone the game ends okay cool and so you have the a, a finite set the game's going to end period here or you can end it a little bit earlier yep well cool well, let's talk about some other obstacles and challenges what else sticks out in your mind you mentioned a little bit runaway leaders so i want to kind of get your thoughts on on that but so runaway leaders as an issue any other obstacles that showed up in the game design process i mean i think one key one that we've also touched on is just the a key component of most engine builders is that you're making these nice little combos out of the things that you're putting in your engine. It is really hard to play test enough to see all of the potential right. combinations, especially when you've got 170 freaking cards. <laughs> right. Right. With a trillion <laughs> different possibilities, right? Just the insane number. So, of like, combos. I don't think we ever saw all the possible. <laughs> I mean, you can't see all the possible combinations. But, like I said, they're sort of falling into categories, and you can see the implications of different things and understand how most of them work. Um, but I, if I could have gotten in another 100 playtests, I probably <laughs> wouldn't have turned it down, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think assigning values and costs to things is really hard because the value of things changes during the game. Mm. So there are things you might add to your engine that, that when you use them generate a fixed number of points. And that's one kind of engine building, right? Like every time you run this piece of your engine, you just get a point. So you want to do that over and over. But there are other things that you can add to your engine that might get you more resources that let you add more stuff to your engine. And over time, if you get those out early, even though that's not in and of itself points, it can end up getting you more points over time. So you and and then you have like in Wingspan there are just cards that are worth a lot of points that don't do anything else for you. They don't build your engine, except to the extent that they're filling up a spot on your board, which inherently helps you. But um so you have these things that are better early game, better late game. You just have to pick a point in time in the game. Like I just said, okay, I'm gonna assume that each card is gonna get used X number of times after it gets played. And how much stuff does it give you if it gets used that number of times? And that's how I'm going to value it in terms of what it should cost versus how many points it should give you. And that is totally imperfect. And there are some cards that are, if you get them early, they're super awesome compared to what they cost. And if you get them late, they suck and vice versa. Um, and that's just always going to be true in this kind of game. Now, there are some games that that will put... Um, the cards or the tiles that you're drawing into categories, right? So like Suburbia, you start out with the super simple tiles that are sort of always or most of the time adding to your income. So they're guaranteed to help you ramp up over time. And then there are other things um, that are in the late game pile that are much more expensive that are just giving you points. Um, so different games deal with it in different ways, but um a lot of times you just have to go with something and, and play test it and make sure that given that you have to pick one point in time for setting the value of something, um, you have to then like, make sure that those things come out early in some play tests and come out late in some play tests and that um, they don't feel broken when that happens, uh, that they're sort of within a range where okay, I can get a really good deal on this because it's early or late, but I can't exploit it so that if I get this card on the first turn of this game, I'm guaranteed to win, right? right? Um, so I definitely did things where I stacked the deck for playtests um, to 
to have some of that happen. You can't guarantee that people will actually play the cards that you put early, but there were cards that I wanted to double check that they were okay early game. Yeah, it's a really good point. Because, you know, there's a lot of games that have, the designer has said, okay, if these cards come out too early, one, it might not be fun. Like if it's a card that only gives you points and doesn't really help you build anything, okay, well, you don't need that at the beginning. You need something to help you build the engine. And so they put that in the C pile, the C deck, to just ensure right. that it comes out at the right in, right time, quote unquote. Uh, and so, yeah, I think you have to really just figure out like what kind of game do you have? What kind of cards do you have that, that do that? But I, I love what you're saying. A lot of times it's just you guess at the beginning and then you go from there. I think there's so many designers, especially new designers, that want the magical formula. They want the magical system that that you don't have to do as much work, right? If you just tell me the algorithm, <laughs> then I don't have to play test as many times. It's like, it doesn't exist. The only, the only answer is more play testing and then taking notes and figuring things out and changing numbers and, and realizing, oh, this card, if it comes out too early, it's it's going to really you know, almost be a guaranteed win for certain players in certain situations. Okay, well, how do we fix that? Like there's no magical bullet. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, there is a formula. <laughs> There's a lot of math, but you don't necessarily know what goes into the formula when you start. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's keep talking about playtesting. <laughs> what were some of the other issues that popped up or you know, other things you learned during the playtesting process? This is something that bothers me playing some engine builders. It can be really hard toward the end of the game when you have a lot of stuff going on. It can be really hard to keep track yeah. of what all of your powers are and whether you have activated them or not. Uh, that's something I felt in Gizmas a little bit, not to pick on them, it's a great game, but <laughs> for me, like you're jumping around from column to column and you have to kind of remember to activate this because you just did this. And then when that causes you to do some other thing, oh, then you have to remember to look in the other column. And uh, if you're jumping around a lot, it can be hard to keep track of. Um, in Wingspan, the way we dealt with the so you're activating the birds in one particular row and at some point fairly late in the process, um, we added the action cubes um, as a result of having decided to have a fixed number of rounds and needing to track how many turns you take. But what that also enabled us to do was to have this it's just a tiny little item. It doesn't matter what it is, but you are then like walking your way down the row of cards and activating them one at a time in order. You can't, because at one point I was letting people decide and, you know, then you can do all kinds of clever things of, you know, you do the thing that lets you draw the two cards and then the thing that where you're spending cards to do something else. But if I was finding that if you let people go out of order, they would want to backtrack and do things in a different order right. and get, get all confused or they would forget to do one of them. Like there was something just really pleasing about like, okay, you're just going to do them one after another. And it's all going to make sense. And you're going to know exactly when you are done and not have any doubt of whether you have done everything. Yeah, I think having that constraint on the players also helps eliminate analysis paralysis, where you have the player that just sits there and tries yes. to figure out the perfect move and min-max everything. It's like, nope, now yes. we're going to do that. You go A, B, C, D. Yeah. There is no D, A, C, B. No, no, we're not doing that. A, B, C, D, and, and just go with that. You have to make better choices on the front end as opposed to figuring out exactly. the magical answer on the back end. Exactly. The decision-making is about building the engine and not the order that you're running it all in. Yeah, definitely. Anything else that popped up during playtesting? I think one other issue with engine builders is that it can feel like it's hard to get going if you don't have access to the right stuff on your first turn. And that's another thing that's just iterative and you have to figure out, like, you also don't want to give people too much stuff on their first turn. Um, and I think it's a fine balance and, you know, there are ongoing arguments among some tiny section of the Wingspan fan base about whether we got it right on this, but, um, how much stuff you should start with. But I think the important thing to think about is that the amount of stuff that you start with has an impact on the power of the engine that you're building. So if you start with a lot of stuff the relative value of everything you're putting in your engine is a little bit less because you already just have a bunch of stuff. So you don't want to give people too much stuff at the beginning, but you want them to have just enough that they can get going because there's nothing that's worse than just like feeling like you're beating your head against the wall and not being able to, to do anything. Um, so that's a fine balance. And, and, Again, I don't think there's a magic answer. It's going to be different for every game. Right. 
one thing I found in my own personal designing is make sure players have at least some kind of a backup opportunity. And this is what I, one thing I ran into with my space game. So it's, it's a flicking game. It's dexterity. And so in your first turn, all your ships are on your home planet and you're going to need to flick them somewhere else. So you need to flick them to another planet to uh, gather resources or to build or to attack. Or you're going to need to do that. But if you have a really bad flick, like if you have a really bad move action and you, you just you just miss and your, your, your ship's right there in the middle of space on your second action, you've got nothing to do. And so that was an issue yeah. I ran into in playtesting. And so I made it where players start off with enough resources where they can do an upgrade action. So if they can't do anything else, they can at least on their first turn upgrade and, and move on, you know, create, you know, make a better ship or make a, you know, do something, anything, right. Which is better than, Oh, I guess I just have to pass, uh, which is no fun at all. And so giving a player just some kind of a backup opportunity to do something, it, it goes a long way. Yeah, and and one of the other things in Wingspan is that, uh, you know, I talked about this sort of double engine building. Even if you make a mistake and don't put out the best bird early on, no matter what, just having a bird in that habitat is making that habitat stronger. Right. So, because I, I do think there is a danger in engine builders that making mistakes early on can really just like ruin your entire game. Yeah. And there isn't, I don't think you want to protect people entirely against that. Right. But um, you, you can at least make it so that even bad decisions are still a little bit good for everyone. Yeah, definitely. I think this is something games run into a lot with new players playing against veteran players, right? And more likely yeah. a veteran player is going to win. And you know that going in if you're a new player, but you don't want to lose by a hundred points, you know, just because right. you made three or four bad plays early on and it just cost you the entire game by a mile. It's okay to lose, but not that much. It just, again, it's not fun. And so figuring out ways to kind of mitigate that where you can, you can recover from bad plays, especially if you're a new player, because uh, everybody's new and everybody's making a bad choice, doesn't matter. But when when you've got that situation where one or two people have already played before and they know the mistakes to avoid, that, that could be an interesting scenario. Yep. All right, cool. Well, let's uh, let's kind of get a little behind the scenes action. You know, a lot of people, they love Stonemaier Games. It's one of their favorite companies, if not their favorite. The, you know, I have people all the time say they would love to work with Jamie Stegmaier and love to uh, get a game signed by him and his company. So give me the kind of behind the scenes development process of <laughs> Wingspan and kind of what all he brought to the table, some of the things maybe he, ideas he had, things he changed and, you know, to make the whole engine building experience better. Yeah, it was very back and forth and I've almost completely lost track of, on a lot of things of what was whose idea. But um, so I met with him at, um, at Gen Con in 2016 and coming out of that meeting, it was him and Alan Stone actually. And um, we had a very nice conversation, but you know, no commitments at Gen Con, which was true with all the publishers that I talked to. They were like, you know, okay, we're, we're talking to everyone and then we'll talk to you after you know, we get back and sort of have sorted through everything. But anyway, so they got back to me after the sort of that sorting through process and said, you know, we gave you a bunch of feedback. Tell us what you would do with it, which I felt was like, oh, thank God I took notes, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Life lesson right there. <laughs> um, and so I wrote them back and was like, okay, you said you wanted X, Y, and Z, and this is how I would do them. I think some of that was sort of ramping up some of the engine building more than how I had it. Um, and they said, great, you know, go do those things and, and send us another copy, which I did by like, I think it was November that I sent them back a thing. So then that was really, they played it and they got back to me by Christmas time. So really we started on development at the beginning of 2017 and it was just me and Jamie going back and forth by email and he, you know, he would play a version and send me a long email worth of notes on it and you know and try this have you considered this i had a problem with this and i would go back and work on it for weeks or more <laughs> and, um, and play test it a bunch more and um or sometimes, you know, there were things I could just reply to right away. I'm like, oh, no, I tried that already and it didn't work. Although it took me a while to realize that it was okay to, to answer him back and be like, no, we can't do that. That's a stupid idea. <laughs> you know? yeah. Or it won't work because act, like at first I think I felt like I really did have to try everything he said. And then over time, 
I realized like, no, he was just sometimes spitballing as much as I was. Yeah. I'd say that's something a lot of new designers like run into of worrying yeah. about the publisher. No, no, it's just a collaborative process. Assuming you're working with a, a decent person, a good, you know, right. a good relationship. Right. So, yeah. Which Jamie certainly is. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it's just a very, eventually a very collaborative back and forth. Um, but all, I don't think this is true for all publishers. In my case, I was always the one with the files making changes to the actual game and going out and playtesting them. Mm-hmm. I, my impression is that with some publishers, you have a developer that is really that like takes over and does all the stuff and checks in with you that you're okay with the stuff, but right. um, is really the, the hands-on person. But in, in our case, it was like Jamie's brain and me implementing it. <laughs> which was great. It was a great learning process for me. And, um, and he had a lot of great ideas and we went on some wild goose chases, but came back around and, and, um, uh-huh. the game's definitely uh-huh. Uh-huh. in, oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> totally unintentional fun. Um, yeah, the game is definitely better for that process. And, you know, it's something I've been thinking about because I, I think it's something that some people lose out on going the Kickstarter route. Like mm. if you can find a publisher that's going to really put the level of attention to development into this game that Jamie put into Wingspan, like that is just such a huge gift. Mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine having done it any other way. Yeah, I agree. I think that's one of the main detriments to a lot of Kickstarter projects is they didn't have that other set of eyes, especially a veteran, someone who's been around for a long time, who's done this a long time, uh, who just sees things differently. They see it as a product. They see the developmental side of things uh, better than you can just as a designer, especially of your own game. It's very difficult to to see the forest for the tree sometimes when it's your own design. And so, yeah, I think that's one of the, the major issues with a lot of Kickstarters and why they're not quite as good as or anywhere near as good as they would be if you went the traditional publishing route. Not not everybody should. I'm not saying, you know, oh, you need to, but I think that is one uh, challenge that they uh, run into. Yeah. I mean, when people talk about the the difference between Kickstarter and publisher, a lot of it's about like, do you want to do the publisher side of like managing the manufacturing and stuff? And I think that the, um, that is important, but I think the development piece is a piece that gets lost in that discussion about like, what are the pros and cons of each side? Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, yeah, and so one thing I've run into, run into to kind of do it differently is I've got a good friend who is a developer. He's a, he's got a really great mind for development. He's not a great designer. He's tried to design his own games, and it just hasn't gone so well. But he is wonderful when it comes at development of, of taking someone else's ideas and going, ooh, but what if you did it this way? And kind of looking at things from different angles and helping to polish things out. And so if you're going to publish it yourself or do your own thing in your own company, find somebody. Even if you got to pay for it. I know J.R. Honeycutt uh, does development services. There's a lot of services now that do development uh, Joe Pilkus is another one, the, the professor. He he does great work as well. And so go out there. And sometimes you got to pay for it. Again, you want to be a publisher. That's just part of the part of the deal. Uh, but finding somebody or an organization that can help you with that development process. Well, cool. Elizabeth, this has been awesome. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts, closing advice for somebody who's working on an engine building game or, or thinking about doing so? Um, I think the one thing we haven't really talked about as well, we, it came up several times, was sort of the runaway leader. Hmm issue um and really keeping an eye on that yeah, any, any advice on how to make sure i think we talked about rubber banding before we get started so any, any yeah thoughts about yeah the rubber banding process and making sure that they don't just run away with it i mean so i talk about the concept of headwind right where like we instituted this cost to creating the 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 higher end pieces of your engine um, making that expensive enough that um, that it slows down people that are that are getting way way built up. Mm-hmm. Um, that is one strategy that a lot of games take on. People talk about that a lot in Dominion, right? That yeah. put buying point cards then slows down your deck uh, in a really elegant way. Um, Suburbia does it where when your population gets past certain points, right, it knocks down your your yeah. income and reputation all, all kinds of games do it uh, another way you can sort of dampen runaway leaders is having limits on things so like in gizmos right you can only you start out with what like five marbles 
as your limit. So if you create this amazing engine that generates five marbles in a turn, like that is, you can't just run that over and over because you don't have anywhere to store all of them. Um, So hand limit, we ended up not feeling like we needed hand limits or um, food limits in wingspan, but the, the bird cards do have limits on how many eggs they can hold on them, which is, intentionally like a little way that you can't just do eggs over and over and over to get points because you will run out of space for them um what are other ways you can slow down the leader i don't in general it's my preference to slow down the leader more than to give out freebies to the people that are behind which is another thing that some games do but i just i i hate that feeling in games that like I should actually intentionally play suboptimally by like the larger picture of what the game wants me to be doing because the optimal move actually is to be in last place and get the free stuff. Right. Like that's just a super weird, uncomfortable feeling to me. <laughs> like I want everything in the game to be pointing in the same direction, not like sending these mixed messages about what I ought to be doing. Uh, so I really strongly prefer slowing down the person in front more than giving free stuff to the person in back. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I just I think those are the main categories in addition to the, what we were talking about in terms of sort of reducing the impact of bad decisions or mitigating that a little bit um, so that you don't get someone running away with it as much. Um, but I, I do think that's one of the absolutely the biggest risks with engine building is sort of getting everything to the point where like you can have games where you have this amazing successful engine but where everyone still feels like they're in the game absolutely well awesome elizabeth again really glad it finally worked out for you to come on the show and and this has been great this has been super informative i have learned a lot uh, especially this engine building game is not a, not a style I've really delved into. One of the reasons because there's so many things to think about and so many things to do. And and so I've learned a lot. And so I really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, good luck with wingspan as the, as the other print runs finally, you know, get, get out there and people can get it, finally get their copies. It's been sold out for a little while. And so I'm excited to see it get into more and more people's hands on more and more people's tables. And so good luck with that and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?